Welcome to Trivially Crucial, where we, we believe every magical creature, enchanted object, and potential friend is important and critical to our lives, no matter how unimportant those elements or the story as a whole may seem. I'm Michael, and as always, with me today is Mandy, and uh, we're going to talk about Harry Potter, because Harry Potter is really a big deal. <laughs> Uh, that's kind of the understatement of century, I think. But <laughs> yeah, I, I was gonna say something like important or awesome or something else, but I figured a big deal would more or less cover it and then give us room. Indeed, indeed. So, um, Mandy, I guess uh, today we want to start off with telling stories of how we got into this whole Harry Potter thing. And then we'll just start talking about Harry Potter and how, why it's important and what makes it such a big deal. So, um, Excellent. I think that you and I have probably talked a bit before about what got us into it, but this time we can explicitly do so. Uh, so yeah, why don't you tell the story of how, what pulled you into Harry Potter? So, uh, Harry Potter started coming out, uh, when I was in late elementary school, like fifth grade, um, early middle sixth grade, that time period. Um, and at that point in my life, I was reading Star Wars books and Asimov and, uh, heavy into science fiction and heavy into adult science fiction. Um, so when all of my friends were reading Harry Potter, I was just like, no, <laughs> that's not going to happen. Like, you're not going to get me to read these little kid books when I'm reading adult books. Uh, and so I held out for a really long time. But then in seventh grade, it was like everyone I knew was reading them. And at that point, Prisoner of Azkaban had just come out. Um, so I was finally like, well, everyone's reading it. I guess I should at least read the first book so that uh, next time they're talking about how awesome it is, I can just put them down and tell them how not awesome it is because I've read it. This is what I thought going in. I thought they were going to be terrible. Because, uh, you know, up to this point, most of the kids' books I read were, you know, we, we've talked about this before. They were on the order of, like, Babysitter's Club. And, yeah, they were the occasional exceptional book, uh, like the, A Wrinkle in Time or The Hobbit. But for the most part, they were pretty terrible. Uh, when it came to kids' books. So we were at Walmart. And this is the only time in my life I can actually recall buying a book at Walmart. Uh, <laughs> we were at Walmart, and I saw The Sorcerer's Stone there uh, in paperback. And so I picked it up, and um, I think I also got Chamber of Secrets for good measure, uh, but it was in hardback at the time. And uh, I took them home, and I just read them both like immediately. And I just remember being gripped from the first page. Um, what struck me about that very first chapter, uh, the boy who lived, um, was when I was reading it, it, the, the way JK Rowling wrote the story at that time struck me as very Rodal. Um, the way, the way he crafted James and that giant peach, the, the kind of wording he used, the, the fairy tale esque element he made it feel like, J.K. Rowling did the same thing in The Sorcerer's Stone. And I don't know, it just pulled me in immediately. Um, and I flew through those first two books, immediately went out and got Prisoner of Azkaban, read it, loved it, and uh, was like, these are the best things I've read in a long time. <laughs> Um, 
yeah, it, it was amazing. And, you know, I remember waiting and just waiting for the fourth book. And when it came out, it was a huge deal. And I don't want to talk too much about the fourth book right now um, because that, that's, that was a year later. Um, but by that point, you know, my little sister had read them. Uh, it, yeah, I, I don't want to get too much into the experience that was Harry Potter. I just want to start at the beginning. Um, but yeah, it, I was just sucked in from, from page one. Page one. I was sucked in. And it's not often that that truly, truly happens where you read a sentence and you're like, I must, I must keep reading until the end and I must know what happens. And, you know, the seventh book came out the summer between my sophomore and junior year in college. And I got it and read it the day it came out. <laughs> Lifelong fan. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, so my story is much, is very much similar. Um, we, I believe I've told some of this before, but I also, I did not do any fantasy whatsoever until Harry Potter. Um, I also went in expecting pretty bad things. I, I really, I was intent on ignoring the series as a whole because everyone else was reading it. Uh, and it was fantasy and I didn't see any way you could make that good. I just didn't see the point. Um, my younger brother, who at the time used to read, now he doesn't really, but at the time he used to read just not nearly as much as I did, he had gotten the first book. And at the, I'm sure that back then the second book was already out. I do not remember how long before the third one was out. It, it, this was long before I was paying attention to book releases and or really release dates of anything. I, I was young enough that I was basically discovering that something I was interested in had come out and then would you know, get it somehow or get my parents to get it for me. Um, but my, uh, one day my brother and my brother was getting ready to go to soccer practice for a couple of hours. And I had seen that he had this Harry Potter book that everybody else had been talking about that didn't look interesting at all to me, but it was just sitting there. And I was at the time I was, this was around the time when I was starting to get grounded from reading periodically because mm. I would reread and reread and reread all my books and would read so many that I was costing my parents ridiculous amounts of money. Um, and so my parents would ground me from books to try and get me to do other things. And I was like, wait a minute, at least this is a book that I haven't read that's sitting in the house. And so it was sitting on our, uh, our TV room table, our living room table. And and I asked him, I, was, I turned to my brother and asked him, well, how is this book? And he was a few pages in and he said, you know, it seems pretty good already from the, from the first little bit. So I'm just giving it a shot. And I kind of rolled my eyes and didn't really think that it held much promise, kind of looked at the back and then opened it up and started reading. And he and my mom left for my brother's soccer practice. And by the time they came back, I... I had just put the book down and I went over to him and I was like, wow, Mark, that was a really good book. And he just kind of, he and my mom were, were like, what do you, what do you mean? It was a really good book. Are you finished? And I was. And so I made my mom take me to the bookstore. It was either that day or the next day to get the second book. And I loved it. And then one day I found the third book. And it's really funny that you you mentioned this being the only book that you had bought from Walmart, um, uh, you know, one of the Harry Potter ones, the third book I got, we had gone to, and I, I don't know why I remember this. We were in Kmart to buy underwear and the third and prisoner of Azkaban, the third Harry Potter book was sitting 
in a little like kiosk in the middle of the store. They just had one of those display cases just in the middle of the store at a random place when you walked in. I was like, oh my gosh, this is the third one, and picked it up. Um, the fourth Harry Potter book is the first one that I got after having made other friends who were obsessed with it and went to a midnight showing or a midnight release of it rather. And, you know, that, that started from the fourth one on that started the showing up to a midnight release, reading a lot of the book in line while waiting to be able to actually purchase it, then continuing to read it, finishing it before going to sleep and then talking about it in, you know, the afternoon, whenever I woke up. Yeah. Because uh, th- that is how I dealt with four, five, six, and seven. So, so it's funny. I never went to a midnight release. Uh, my parents didn't believe in such nonsense at the time. Uh, there's actually a, a funny story that uh, for the fifth book, my mom did not believe me that this book was going to sell out. Because... Uh, <laughs> We found the fourth book in a store. I, I vividly remember where I got each book. Uh, we got the fourth book at a, uh, a Barnes and Noble. Um, and we were there first thing in the morning, and it wasn't a huge deal. There was a copy of the book there, and I bought it, and I read it immediately, of course. But for the, so for the fifth book, I was like, Mom, they, they're letting people you know, reserve their copies of Harry Potter five, like Order of the Phoenix. We have to do this now. And she was like, no, it's just a book, honey. You're... You're not going to have to – it's not going to sell out. Um, <laughs> famous so, last words. Famous last words. So when the fifth book came out, I was in the 10th um, tenth, tenth grade, I believe. Um, and so it either – I don't know if I was driving or not when it came out. But my brother was home from college. And at this by this point, my brother was reading Harry Potter. Um, though it, it took – he got into it much later um, – I think right after the fourth book uh, was when I finally got my brother, older brother to read it. Um, and he was like, we have to go find Harry Potter right now. Uh, so it's like the morning it came out, we go to Barnes and Noble, not there. We go to Borders, not there. And this is my brother driving me and my little sister everywhere. And if, you know, m- my relationship with my brother was not the kind where he would drive me anywhere. So this was like huge monumental bonding family experience right here. Um, <laughs> So we couldn't find it at Borders. So finally we go to the mall and we found it at a Walden's book uh, because Walden Books didn't have midnight releases and they were, the mall wasn't open at midnight. The mall had just opened. And uh, I remember my brother was like, we were only going to buy one copy. And he was like, I get to read it first because uh, he was the oldest. He was in college. Um, and I was like, absolutely not. You read slower than molasses, which he does. Um, and so I bought my own copy. I think that's one of the first books I bought with my own money, you know, as opposed to my parents. Uh, and yeah, I just remember it's like this vivid family experience of trying to track down this book. And after that, when the, for the sixth book, gosh, when did the sixth book come out, Michael? You know, I really don't remember. Um... I can't remember if I was in high school or college, but I definitely reserved a copy. I just can't remember if it was like I, know I, was, I was still college. at home. Well, yeah, I, I don't remember if I was still at home, living at home, or if I was in college. I, I had to have been in high school when it came out, because the seventh book came out between sophomore and junior year, and there was a wait. The, the, so the sixth and seventh ones, I was you know, I was in college. Um, they were pretty straightforward. I went home. Um, I mean, granted, I went to college near home, so uh, every single one of the books from four through seven I got from the same local borders um, that was close to my parents' house. Um, so for those books, I just 
went home for the weekend, went to the midnight release, and then crashed at my parents' place while, like, right after finishing reading. Um, the fifth one... Uh, the, the sixth one came out in 2005. Okay. So that... In the summer. So that would have been the summer between my uh, senior year and college. Gotcha. <laughs> um, yeah. The fifth one I had a kind of hilarious story for because I was in school, uh, in high school, getting ready, you know, prepping for college. I had taken the SAT once, was not happy with my score, so I was actually taking an SAT prep class on the weekends. And the book came out on a Friday night, I believe. Um, And yeah, that's right. It came out on a Friday night, and I had a practice SAT test in my SAT prep class that Saturday morning. But the fifth Harry Potter (laughs) book came out, so I stayed up. I I stayed up till midnight, went to the midnight release, read the entire book, finished it at 7 a.m., which is when I would have been waking up to go to to the class... And so I just closed the book and then took a shower and <laughs> drove to my SAT prep class, which I was completely exhausted and uh, took the, pre- the prep class, the, like the, the prep test. And one of the other people in that class with me had to keep waking me up during each section because I would just <laughs> fall asleep once I like blitzed through the section. I just kind of fell asleep and he would just prod me awake when the next section was starting. Um and which means, you know, I was just so tired, I was not double-checking my answers or anything. And of course, that is the highest score I ever got on a practice test. Of course. Um, or real test. It just by a, by a long shot. Um, so, yeah, that was, it was pretty hilarious. Uh, yeah, good times. Man, Harry Potter. So many memories of just releases and stuff like that. I know, I, yeah. It's, it's really... It was just a big part of our childhoods. And, you know, you and I, we didn't grow up in the same place. We didn't know each other till late college. Um, right. In fact, I don't think we knew each other until there were seven Harry Potter books. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it's not, just, it's not just you and me. This is our whole generation. Um, it, it brought together – you've mentioned it before on this podcast how uh, suddenly the other kids were reading big books too. Yeah. Uh, because of Harry Potter. And, and not just know, reading big books. Some of them, it was a shock that they were reading at all. Right. 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 <laughs> it's a shock that I remember being in the eighth grade and everyone carrying around the Goblet of Fire, which was a huge book. And let me tell you, at my eighth grade school, uh, we were not allowed to have backpacks or lockers. So to carry around a book that big was a commitment because <laughs> you had no place to put it. If you, were, if you were reading Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, you were literally carrying it on your person all day with your other books and notebooks. Um, so I just remember everyone had it. Like on the corner of everyone's desk was Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a huge deal because suddenly, suddenly everyone discovered they had a little bit of geek in them, right? You know, yeah. uh, I had always been the weird kid reading the science fiction, but now everyone was reading some, something speculative. Uh, I, you know, it, I'm thinking yeah. about how dated what that thing that you just noted is going to be in about 20 years when everybody's just reading it on their, you know, Kindle 5000 or their <laughs> tablet or whatever. And then they'll be like, oh, are you reading something or are you playing a game? Like there's yeah. not none of that. Oh, wow. That book is huge. What is it? Or, hey, that's the same book that I'm reading. Or yeah. I just read that kind of. That's a, a, 
kind of makes me sad. <laughs> yeah, it does kind of make me sad. I mean, I, I love I love being able to read stuff on my Nook and my iPad and my phone because without having to carry them around. But but man, that whole just taking over. Uh, I guess you could call it the the cover art effect is just gone. Yeah. So. Yeah, and seeing where someone's bookmark was. So, you know, with the, the fourth book was so huge, right? Yeah. And uh, I just remember you could tell why, by what their bookmark is, where they were. And you'd be like, oh, what did you think of the World Cup? You know? And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh man. The World Cup. We'll, we'll get to that in a bit. So, yeah. so let's, uh, let's roll back now that we've let's, talked about the experience so surrounding we... it. Um, we could talk about the beginning of the series. Um, yeah. We, we'll talk about... Uh, and as was your idea, we'll talk about um, Sorcerer's Stone slash Philosopher's Stone, uh, Chamber of Secrets, and Prisoner of Azkaban, which are the first three books, and sort of the... I don't know, how would you describe those as a as their position in the series? I mean, other than just the beginning of the series, you could say they're the um, they're the ramp-up of sorts, the introduction to the... They're, they're the introduction, and it's, you know... The, there's no... <laughs> Oh, there's no high stakes, you know, like yeah. you didn't really feel like this was just an adventure story at that point. Um, right. They're, they're very different. Yeah. So uh, I think a good way to drive home how you mentioned before, how from the first page, you know, it, it grabbed you. And a good way to drive that home is really to discuss the very, very, very beginning of the yes. first book. You just you open up this book and all of a sudden if I recall correctly, there's this guy standing up who just appears on a street. No, that's not how it starts. That's not. No. It, okay. So it starts with uncle Vernon. Uh, oh, it's, it starts right. with introducing you to this family at number four, Privet drive. Yeah. Uh, Vernon, uh, and, uh, Aunt Petunia and, uh, Dudley. And there's all these crazy news stories, but, Vernon doesn't notice it because he's just concentrating on work. That's correct. Um, and he's at work and there's like owls falling from the sky, but he doesn't notice because his back is to the windows. Um, and it's not until uh, he's at lunch and he passes a whole bunch of strangely clothed people. Wow. I haven't read this book in <laughs> over a year. It, it's striking how, how much I remember this. Um, he he passes strangely clothed people and he's he's like off foot by them, but he's like whatever, I don't care. But then he hears them mention the name Potter uh, and the name Harry, and that's when he starts to worry because uh, he knows his his wife's sister is married to a Potter, and he thought that they had a son named Harry. Um, but then he tries to like talk himself out of it, and when he gets home and he uh, he sees Petunia, he tries to like nonchalantly ask her like. So, you know, your sister, and she gets all, like, offended. You know, well, what was her son's name again? Something That's stupid, right, yeah. Harold. And she's like, Harry. And then he's all, like, freaking out. Um, and so then they go to bed, and he's still, like, off kilter because there's been these weird news stories all day. And that – and, oh, the cat's been watching them this entire time. Um, and you, there, there's this strange cat who's been watching them since the beginning of the morning. And he thought he saw it reading a sign earlier. And then he was like, that's crazy. Cats don't read signs. Um but then when they go to bed, the cat's still there, and that is when the strange man shows up and right. starts putting out the lights. Oh, well, and so I guess a, a really big way to do it is, even if you don't know anything about it, which I had ignored everybody talking about it, the first chapter title, which is really the first thing you read, is what, The Boy Who Lived, correct? Yes. The that's, Boy Who Lived. That already just kind of grabs you. 
And I, I remember that picture. Like, I can vividly remember the title <laughs> with the picture above it of little Harry Potter. <laughs> oh. Yeah, but you're right. It does, first it establishes these are normal people who are glad to be normal people and don't want to be anything other than normal people. And something strange is happening in the world that they're trying to ignore. Yeah. And they're not going to be given a Wow, you're right. Choice. I never thought about how Roald Dahlish that is. It's very Rodolish. I mean, the fact that he lives with these, this aunt and uncle who essentially hate him. He lives under the cupboard. Very Matilda. Like, it's very Matilda, James and the Giant Peach. Yeah. I, I had not read Matilda at this point. I had read James and the Giant Peach. Um, and I was just like, wow. this." That was it, the opposite it, way. And I, I guess, I, I don't know if I had thought about it at the time, but it's been such a long time since that first time I read Harry Potter. I, I vividly remember thinking it was James and the Giant, like not in a bad way, not in a like this is a complete ripoff of James and the Giant Peach, but in a this is incredibly sim- I loved that book. This is incredibly similar. I'm gonna love this book too. Um, and one thing that gets me every time uh, when I I remember getting you know because I read them when the first three books are out, so I read all the way to the end of the first of that third book. Mm-hmm. And then I don't think I reread them again until the fourth book came out. I, I don't think I did an in-between reread. Uh, and I remember being shocked that Sirius Black is mentioned in that first chapter. Like, oh, right, right, shows yeah. up and he's like, I borrowed this motorcycle from young Sirius Black. Yes. You know? And I'm just like, what? <laughs> like, Sirius Black's not mentioned until book three. And he's already, like, I mean, he's not a character until book three. And he's already mentioned right here in our opening prologue. We have been introduced to the name Sirius Black. So I think we should, uh, just a quick aside, because we haven't actually mentioned any spoilers yet, but we're going to be discussing spoilers (laughs) for Harry Potter. So so let's just uh, throw that out there for anyone who's listening, who is like, "Uh uh-oh, Sirius Black, like, I I know that's a name. Are they going to talk about... You know, yes, what goes on with him? Yes, yes, it. we are. <laughs> Especially when we get to the third book and then later the fifth, fifth book? Fifth yes. book. Yes. Yes. Uh, so. Yes. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny because uh, the, the first book, looking back, not a lot of stuff happens. It's all world introduction stuff, but it's just. But that's the point, right? It's not so much yeah. about the events as all the stuff it's introducing you to. And that's really all three of the, uh, the first three books are all like that. They're just introducing you to these big ideas that you're just like oh well that's really neat and then you just keep going like it and it introduces them to you through and this is it's not like this is an especially clever way of doing things but it introduces us to to these things by introducing harry to them Mm -hmm. harry doesn't know anything at all about this world so we get introduced to him along with harry so it doesn't seem ridiculous that we're learning this stuff anew while a lot of time in other books if you're following a protagonist who lives in you know, the world that stuff is happening, they might be, it it almost feels kind of weird that you're being introduced to some detail or that somebody's mentioning something to them because you feel like the main character might already, should already know something. Um, But in this, it's always reasonable that Harry Potter doesn't know anything at all about what's going on. Um, Right. And uh, that's actually something that I I always thought was really fun, that uh, the, the way that they, that J.K. Rowling used Ron and Hermione to introduce the reader to things a lot. Because Ron was the one who was always like, how could you not know this? Because everyone knows it, and he does not, he's not really clever enough to realize that some people just grow up in different right. <laughs> in different worlds. And I mean, they're 11 at this point, things. right? Yeah. Like, um, And then you have Hermione, who is so obsessed with learning everything that she learns what she can. So, So it's not everything is being taught to you from 
the one kid who grew up in this environment. You have one from the, like, some from the diligent person who will therefore actually know things, know some things that other kids don't because she's learning through books, but also sometimes her knowledge is a little bit off because of it. Um, because she only knows stuff that she can learn formally. She doesn't know just the casual sorts of things that you learn from growing up in an environment. It's kind of like uh, someone who studies a language really well, but never hasn't done the full exposure to that, uh, to that culture. And so they might know by the books how to speak a certain language, but then you start using any sort of slang and they, they're just kind of left, you know, with a deer in the headlights look. Um, and I always liked how they, how, you know, Harry's friends were used for that. And I, and I always liked that um, Harry, Ron, and Hermione don't start out as friends. I mean, Harry yeah. and Ron hit it off almost from day one. But really, the first wizard Harry meets, his age is Draco, which yeah. I always thought was brilliant. Because uh, at that point, Draco doesn't know who Harry is. And you, you see... They don't hate each other at that point. Like, Harry gets a bad feeling from Draco just from the way he talks. Right. Um, but you're like, I, they, they could have been friends, you know? Um, but then he meets Ron, and they and he's help like, oh, him out. this guy's a nice guy. Like, this is, right. this is the kind of person I want to be friends with. Right. But then they meet Hermione, and they pretty much hate her with, with the kind of hate that 11-year-olds have. Right. Right? It's not this, like, seething hatred. It's just like, ah, oh, you're so annoying. Get away from me. And it's totally something you buy, too. It's kind of the, wow, she's a really annoying know-it-all. Yes. And so but, – and, but in the end, I mean, they basically become, like, mini-bullies towards her, right? Like, not – Right, right. It, not, not as bad as Draco, but not – they they do they they do kind of bully her and they're mean to her and one thing that really stood out to me in that first book was the whole um, uh, troll scene right that yeah. that's where Harry Ron and Hermione become friends and Hermione was in that bathroom crying because of stuff Ron and Harry said to her right and that's why they went to save her because they realized oh crap like this is our fault um, which is really great because it's the kind of you know when you're <sighs> Of course, we were that age. I mean, I think yes. I, you know, we were around that age. I think technically, since I was reading this a little bit before or a little bit after the third book came out, I was a couple of years older than them, and then like caught up to my age. Yeah. Um, but but it's the kind of thing where, you know, you think of, and I, I'm around kids a lot, and I know that there are kids who are bullies, and then there are kids, but kids who aren't bullies can bully still yes right and then and it's the the kids who don't continue to be to bully they're like when you call them out on it they're like oh yeah that was that was mean i should i should say sorry and like the kids who genuinely feel bad about it once they cross that line and that it's just completely realistic in the way that they're kind of the they're like oh i guess we should do something about that because that's our fault yeah um and I just love the way she ends that chapter. It's one of those lines that just like completely stuck in my head. Um, was it basically says after you fight a troll together, you can't not be friends. <laughs> uh, and I was like, there are so many things though in your childhood that that pretty much describes how you made friends with this person. Like because you experienced something with them, and it's like after that, you can't not be friends with this person. Like, yeah, th- that's something that brought you together. And then from then on. Hermione is part of their group. Like, and 
yes, they tease her some still after that, but she gives it back as good as she gets. Yeah. But it's a completely different relationship at that point than it was before. Before, there was definitely like Hermione was hurt by everything, and uh, they didn't realize how mean they were being. But it, it's just, yeah, it, it's just phenomenal that uh, I think in so many books, especially kids' books, people immediately start out as friends, and uh, there's no like, they're just friends or they're not. You're, you're either Draco or Ron. You know what this and, makes me think uh, of is actually, what? it's kind of like, and I was not expecting to reference this, it's kind of like Firefly. Um, <laughs> when, like, you know, if you say something that Mal, Captain Mal Reynolds doesn't really like, like he's going to start off just kind of really sort of hard-edged towards you. But once he counts you as part of his crew, yeah, he's still going to tease you and make fun of you but you're part of his crew and he's going to look out yeah. for you. And it's the same sort of thing. Like they continue to tease each other and make fun of each other. And they certainly get into fights later um, that are kind of a big deal, but they're always really looking out for each other in the end. And that starts at the troll scene. Um, yes. And that's a, it's a big deal. I mean, just to go back and reread that first book after you've read, you know, most of, if not all of the rest, it, it that's a, it's a really big deal, and it feels like the kind of place that the kind of friendship they have could have actually started. Um, even if we don't all fight trolls together to make our good friends. <laughs> um, yes. I, and and I, it so, completely explains... Go ahead. I was going to say, and it completely explains why these three people are friends, as opposed to, you know, it could just have easily have been Dean Thomas and Lavender Brown, you know? Right. but. In many ways, who your friends are, especially at that age, are are caused by happenstance. And you know, it could have been Ron's Neville family as well. Like, right, I, I mean, happened to be the family that Harry ran into on the platform, and uh, you know, it, it could just as easily have been Neville. You're right, Neville and his grandmother. I, I mean, I could have um, totally, yeah, I could totally see a scenario where Harry would bump into Neville and they would bond over, hey. Yeah, I don't, I don't have parents either. Kind of, you know, just yeah. sort of having that sort of common bond, and and sure, they do become friends later, but it's not the kind of friendship that Harry and Ron have. They're, you know, they're practically brothers. Um, yeah, and then spoilers, they, they are brothers later, <laughs> <laughs> and not in a messed up uh, comic book storyline way, in a completely normal way. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, that that's one thing, and. And this is true. So my mom has never read the books. She's watched the movies and she loves them even. My mom's not an especially critical media person, but she's still like, there is still a bit of the magic in the, the big thing that does come across in the movies, regardless of other, other issues is just that connection with these kids. Like you're actually watching real kids growing up with real relationships with each other. And that's the thing. Like my mom like she still tears up when she sees a snippet of the first movie because she sees <laughs> she tears up and she's like oh my gosh i watched them grow up and i watched them grow up together as real friends it, it, like it doesn't click that oh these are actors who are playing parts cuz they're just their friendship feels real both in the books and the movies and and it it really is that the biggest thing about these books is just that connection that we have with the characters i mean the story is I really enjoy the story and the mythology and how everything connects, but it, none of it would matter nearly as much if not for the way that we connect to Harry, Ron and Hermione and their friendship, even when we're exasperated with all of them at the same time. 
Um, I agree. Uh, actually, that makes me think of um, uh, as silly as this is, or may seem, uh, a very Potter musical. Do you know about it, Michael? I do not know about this. Okay, so you need to go to YouTube and watch a Very Potter musical. It was basically made by kids our age when they were in college. Um, after the seventh book came out, they wrote a musical, uh, a Harry Potter musical. And it's it's part parody and part, like, ode to Harry Potter. And it's hilarious. Um, but there's a... Uh, the, the, the first song is called Going Back to Hogwarts. And every time I hear it, because I have all the songs downloaded on my iPod, um, and it'll come up randomly, I just think this, this completely describes why we love these books and why each book um, is so has such a, a huge pull to us. And uh, one minute, let me find the... the it's a... Uh, you know... Back to wizards and witches and magical beasts, to goblins and ghosts and to magical feasts. It's all that I love and it's all that I need at Hogwarts. Back to spells and enchantments, potions and friends, to Gryffindors, Hufflepuffs, Ravenclaws, Slytherins. Back to the place where our story begins. It's Hogwarts. And I'm just like, yes, like that, that's why we love these books because we grew up with them. It's coming back to our friends. Like, it's almost like this was a whole other life we all had uh, growing up, you know, like in, in Harry Potter. I mean, there's... I don't think there's a single person I know our age, maybe one, one who uh, hasn't considered what Hogwarts house they would be in. Yeah, um, that was uh, definitely something I was thinking about from a very early point. I mean, I know firmly that I am a Ravenclaw. Uh, and if I have a secondary house, it's Slytherin, as terrible as that might seem. It's but, not. Uh, hey, we already know from the seventh book that's not a big deal. I know, I know, but I mean, Ravenclaws are all about intelligence, and Slytherins are all about ambition, and bam, that's me. I'm a complete uh, Slitherclaw. But uh, and I think Michael, you, you said you would be a Gryffindor. Well, uh, so no, so I I was always, and I think it's changed over time. Early on, I would have definitely been. I'm sending you an image that you need to check out. By the way, okay, um, it's it's a really funny. Uh, I'll describe it once you've checked it out. But um, I. Uh, Early on, there's no question I would have been a Gryffindor, and then as I got older, that switched over to becoming a so-called real Hufflepuff, like a Cedric Diggory Hufflepuff, not the right. if you don't fit anywhere else, you end up in Hufflepuff how, uh, sort of one, which is right. how uh, I was A Cedric Diggory, right. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely one of those things where, I, you know, I would be one of the people that the Sorting Hat would have a discussion with. Like which house should you go in? Kind of, kind of, because I it would it it would be really hard to make that call. But I think in the end it would end up being Hufflepuff over uh, over Gryffindor. Um, I have a I little. I think the bit, only house I could not be in would be Gryffindor. I think the only one I couldn't be in would be Slytherin. Um, this is probably why we're such good friends. <laughs> possibly, <laughs> yeah, and it's funny though because uh, so what what is the defining factor of um, uh, of Slytherin, what did the, the way that they actually said it, that, that's not... It's ambition. Ambition, right. right. And so basically, that's why Harry Potter would have been so good in Slytherin, because he was highly ambitious, right? right. He needed to prove himself. He needed to, to be the best... Uh, uh, you know, he needed to live up to, to what people had put on him. And, and really... I have a whole defense for Slytherin House, like, in the back of my brain. I really well, wish... And you don't need to. We, we, yeah. Like, the books themselves, and we'll discuss this as we go, the books themselves 
defend Slytherin adequately by the end. They do, though I do wish that uh, J.K. Rowling had put in a Slytherin student that we more sympathized with. Like, we, we definitely saw Slytherins grow up to be good people. I, I just wish there had been someone in their year who, not necessarily a friend, per se, but a Slytherin that they were like, you know, they're, that's a decent person. Well, we'll get to that. We'll discuss, uh, we'll discuss why, why she may have not done so. Because um, I've got ideas. But, uh, <laughs> this thing you're sending me is not downloading fast. I'm, not, I'm really sorry. Is it downloading it's, at all? Because I'm still not seeing it even that you confirmed. Okay, it, it, you can... We can cancel the transfer. It's just an image of when I was looking up uh, a very Potter musical. I typed in A space V, and a very Pot- Potter musical was the first Google suggested result. Was it really? Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. Um, you have to watch it. Uh, it's it's. I mean, it's hilarious. Um, the The kid who plays Harry Potter is um, actually in the show Glee. But he did this first. Like they, this is a bunch of University of Michigan students who who did this. As uh, you, you need to watch it. It's I will. I will. Very enjoyable. Um, so we need to though. We need to get back to talking about the actual stories. Um, right. So Sorcerer's Stone. Yes. Uh, uh, which is originally the Philosopher's Stone. It's still really weird to me that they changed the. I don't understand name. why they did because we wouldn't have known a difference. We wouldn't have known a difference, and when it came down to it, the the historical like. The mythological object that they were naming that after is called the Philosopher's Stone. Yeah. Whether you're American or British, it's right. the Philosopher's Stone. So it's really weird that they did that. Um, I think they underestimated American kids. <laughs> well, and I, I don't understand. Like They uh, changed yeah. it because they thought we would get it confused with, like, because we wouldn't know what the Philosopher's Stone is. And so we would think it actually has something to do with philosophy or something, and then we wouldn't want to read it. So they changed it to Sorcerer so that we'd be like, oh, this book has something to do with magic. That's just weird, because they they tell us about... Yeah. They they describe what the Philosopher's Stone is in it, or the Sorcerer's Stone, rather, or whatever. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so yeah, go ahead and why don't you start talking about Sorcerer's Stone? Uh, so we, we've already kind of started talking about it, but, uh, I wanted to talk about our bad guys in the Sorcerer's Stone, right? Um, so Snape, Quirrell, and Voldemort. Mm -hmm. Uh, I always thought it was incredibly clever how, how she did it. I mean, we knew Voldemort was there, right? The entire time, like something's up Voldemort. Uh, yeah, yeah, whatever. Voldemort. We, we were kids. Voldemort's our big bad guy, but clearly someone is personally bad here in Hogwarts. And uh, the first book is probably the only book where I was ever convinced for a split second of time that it could be Snape. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Because there were so many things where you're like, and, and Quirrell, you would never suspect Quirrell. I mean, Quirrell's right when he says, you know, later, like, why would anyone suspect, you know, poor, uh, pathetic Quirrell? And it's like, that is completely true. It's completely well done, yeah. And you read, you reread the book and you're like, okay, I buy this, you know? Yeah, but you, when you reread the book, you see how it's obviously Quirrell, too. Like, right. when they think it's Snape casting the spell on Harry's broom, but it's also mentioned in the same line that, like, Quirrell was looking at Harry and, you know, Hermione knocked Quirrell over accidentally uh, before she set 
Snape's robes on fire. So she broke Quirrell's eye contact with Harry. And, and it's just stuff like that you pick up on your second time that you're like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it really was Quirrell. This wasn't a, like, Agatha, Agatha Christie pull out of nowhere. <laughs> you know? Uh, Agatha Christie, was, wow. It was That's always Quirrell. <laughs> it was. And, and that was... I think that's the the really big thing that I like a lot about the way Rowling did things is until later in the series, you could see everything was plotted out well, like well ahead of time. Certainly even in the later series, at least within the same book, if not the last couple of books. Um, And, you know, and it's just really well done that way in that you... Once you are surprised by something, you can go back and read and just start looking for clues ahead of time mm-hmm. and see that they are there. The information is there, but she properly hides the information such that you're not going to suspect it. Um, definitely happens in, of course, the first one. Definitely happens in the in the third one. Um, there's not as much... I mean, it, there's more there in the second one, but you know less of the relevant information in Chamber of Secrets, I feel like. I mean, in the, in the second one... You, you don't necessarily – I guess – I don't know. I don't know if there was ever a time when I didn't know. I, it's hard It's hard now, right? Because we've read them so many times. Right. Uh, it's like it, it was Ginny in the second one, you right. know? And Ginny is not who you want to suspect. You want to suspect Draco or one of his – And you suspect like, something like wrong. Like Harry does, you But know? it totally – like the way that they assume it is happening in the book – and this is true in the first one is – you know, Quirrell is poor, bumbling Quirrell. And sure, he didn't used to be bumbling, but you haven't seen him that way. And everyone else is like, you know, he ran into something in, you know, uh, wherever he was on vacation that one time. And um, and he's been messed up since. Like, they, they give you reasons to not suspect the people who are... Uh, who are guilty. And in Ginny's case, it was like, oh, she's just really shy around Harry. <laughs> like, and, and you would never suspect that the heir of Slytherin would be a Gryffindor. I mean, not that she is the heir of Slytherin, but she's doing the things that the heir of Slytherin would do. Right. right? And, and so you're like, of course it's not a Gryffindor. How could the, a Gryffindor be the heir of Slytherin? Right. And, 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 you know, Prisoner of Azkaban, there's no reason whatsoever to think that that Sirius Black isn't actually a bad guy. Like, there is no, no information that you have from earlier in the series that would tell you otherwise. Um, you hear, you hear his name mentioned in the, in the first book, if you've read it, you know, if you've reread it, you're like, oh, they have Sirius Black's motorcycle. Okay. But then at the same time, they tell you in the third one, he was their friend and he betrayed them. Yes. You know, and that, that's, they, they always give you enough information. And, and I guess that's the, the thing is that other people come to certain conclusions that are reasonable conclusions to come to. And you follow along with those conclusions or they definitely have, you know, in the first three books. Yes. I, I think in later books, Harry g- leaps to conclusions that are not valid to go to <laughs> Right. just because he hates people. <laughs> right. Right. Because he's a really angsty teenager who yes. needs to grow up. Yes. Um, <laughs> looking at you order of the Phoenix, but, <laughs> but it's uh, so true in those early books. Like, you know, in the first book, of course you think it's Snape in the second book. Of course you think it's Draco, you know, in, in the third book, of course you think Sirius is a bad guy. And, and then, uh, all of these things, you know, in, in Chamber of Secrets, when you learn it's not, not only is it not Draco, but Draco has no idea who it is. And you're just like, 
who is it? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're it's like, uh, well, that was our only suspect. <laughs> that was our only suspect. We have no yeah, idea who it is. Yeah. He wants to know who it is. And it's just... Uh, it, it, and, and it's brilliant, of course, the way that this is all done, because this sets stuff up for later in the series as well. It just, with our ability to just immediately ignore Harry's suspicions later on. Like, you just... Later on in the series, you just kind of assume Harry's wrong when he starts yeah. suspecting people. And that's because of the way the first few books work, where his suspicions are perfectly reasonable. And um, they're wrong. Yeah. yeah. What, I, what I think has always been interesting about Chamber of Secrets, you know, is... Chamber of Secrets is my least favorite book, but it still has some of my favorite moments in it. Uh, my, my favorite moment in Chamber of Secrets is the, the dueling club when... Uh, when Draco conjures the snake, uh, which I, I still think that spell would have been way beyond him at that age, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> I, I totally buy that, you know, he would have asked his dad for something really impressive and worked hard at it. Because you get the impression Draco is reasonably intelligent when he's driven to something. That's and, true. I mean, and he is a Slytherin. He's ambitious. And right? he's ambitious and he's cocky and he probably wanted something to be able to pull out of his sleeve to to really like, blow people away. Um, yeah. So I, I, but, I could buy that, but generally I doubt that he would have more than one or two spells at that kind of level. Right. I, I, but I just love that whole sequence where everyone realizes Harry is a parcel tongue and he didn't, he didn't know that, such that, that made exists. him special. Like he, he knew he could talk to snakes. <laughs> well, he didn't know that that was an ability. He was just right. like, it's just magic. It just happens. Right. I mean, yeah, I've done it once before, but I didn't think anything of it because all this other stuff happened and nobody thought it was weird that the glass disappeared or, um, you know, or my, uh, I guess it's later that his aunt blows up. Um, But but still, like, he he does not know what is normal and not normal for a wizard because he's not like Hermione going in all the books. So he doesn't even know the question to ask, like, is this weird? So when he's there and he stops it, um, and of course everyone thinks he's egging the snake on to Justin Finch Fletchley, uh, our our Hufflepuff friend. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And that scene just always sticks with me because even, even Snape at that moment is shocked. You know, and, and to see a professor shocked, right, is it, just like because Snape always has this aura of knowing way more than he lets on, right, right, and and so when when he's just like legitimately shocked, you're like, whoa, this is a big deal. And like, keep in mind, this is the one. This is the professor who is all like. We dislike him, and he knows all kinds of dark stuff that's going going on, and, you know, we have all reason. Even though he wasn't the person who was guilty last time around, um, did they discover in the first one that he used to work for Voldemort? Or which uh, which story is it that we learn he was a, a Death Eater? I forget which book it was. Was that three or four? We definitely know in four. Right, right. We, we know then, but... Okay, so... So, anyways, though, like... For Snape to have no idea what's going on, I mean, this is, and that's a big thing, is for for any of the kids to do something magic-related that the professors don't understand is just mind-boggling, right? Like, any other time, somebody's like, oh, somebody stole our stuff to make Polyjuice Potion. Like, they can tell from what's missing that Polyjuice Potion was made and that somebody's up to no good. They can tell that, you know, even if they don't know the context of why a kid is doing something, they know what's going on. 
right. Uh, you know, and and for this, it's just shocks everybody. Like, what's going on? Nobody should be a parcel tongue. Like, the last parcel tongue was Voldemort, right? Right. Um, <laughs> and it's not something you can learn either. And Harry has no idea. It's yeah, just, <laughs> and it's just a really affecting. It's an affecting scene, and and that's the scene where the school turns against Harry, right? Uh, because now they think he is the heir of Slytherin because uh, right. he's a parcel tongue and Slytherin's a parcel tongue and Voldemort's a parcel tongue. And um, especially, you know, the Hufflepuffs, especially since uh, Justin gets um, uh, petrified yeah. uh, shortly thereafter. Um, and so it's just, yeah, it, <laughs> Um, it, it's it, it's just a uh, it's a remarkable sequence that is my favorite sequence both in the book and the movie. Um, that movie, I you know, it's not a movie I go back and rewatch often. But if it's on, even if it's on TV, I often skip over it unless I think it's early enough that I'm going to see that scene. And then a lot of times I'll watch that scene and then turn it off. <laughs> uh, interesting thing that that made me think of. You mentioned Justin getting petrified, and that a thing that they use a lot really well early on is the disparity of knowledge from children to adults um because you have these kids who are trying to fix this problem that really isn't their business to try and fix Mm -hmm. um and so they're collecting information but they're missing information that the adults have and of course there's this whole like in your brain you're like if only these people were talking to each other they would have this pool of information that would be really useful for solving this problem. But the kids have no idea who they can trust and don't think they can trust Snape, who, you know, is a professor. And of course, if they go to Snape with the information, he's going to tell them, you know, like, uh, he's going to give them detention for being in places they shouldn't be in. And, you know, basically rightfully so. Um, And uh, that's a big deal in Chamber of Secrets, because of course, like, it took them a while to figure out the the basilisk thing. Yeah. Um, and it was Hermione who figured it out and had to somehow tell them. Yeah. And then you she know the professors petrified. knew ahead of time, like wh- before she did, they were like, there's a basilisk here. What is going on? Yeah. I mean, but it had happened before, uh, too. Right. right. So, uh, with Hagrid and, um, yeah, I, I, what I think is interesting about chamber of secrets, of course, in, in both of these early books, I, you know, in the first book, a teacher is, the bad guy, right? Right. Uh, in the second book, you can't trust the teachers because they are hiding information from the students purposefully, and like, they should be honestly, right? Because like, <laughs> they're going to start a panic, and, and they know it, and they don't want parents pulling their kids out of the school. Um, but you know, it, this had happened before, and uh, it's it, it's interesting uh, that almost uh, that distrust of teachers. Uh, it is almost a theme of Harry Potter. And I think that, you know, that's a reason why a lot of people criticize the series too. Um, but I think it's a valid point for, for that age, especially uh, middle grade and teenager, uh, because a lot of times adults do try to protect us things from things that if we knew them at that age, we would be better off knowing, you know? Um, it's a larger philosophical point too, is that the general... Um, when is the truth versus lies versus hiding the truth? Like what is best? And sure. in in some particular cases, you know, it, it's the argument over honesty, always being the best policy and, you know, transparency always being the best versus choosing when to hide information and when not to. And there's, there's all kinds of, 
great. I mean, that, that, and that's a major theme of Harry Potter because totally. Dumbledore hides information from Harry up to the very end. And when he finally gives Harry information that nobody else has. <laughs> right. Right. And uh, I mean, but he he relies on Snape to even give him that information after he's dead. Be, I mean, this is getting beyond to the seventh book, but it's just because there, there is that line, right? When are they too young to tell? When is not telling them now endangering them? Um, it's it, it's a fine line, right? Like if you had told Harry and Sorcerer's Stone, you have to die to defeat Voldemort. Yeah. Um, I, I don't imagine it would have gone over well. It, I mean, it would have been, he would not have had as normal a life as he had, uh, which isn't to say he had a very normal life, but you know what I mean. Right. Um, so, yeah. I, and, and Chamber of Secrets, uh, you know, that's in, in the first book, there was one bad teacher, but at least all the other teachers, even in the end, you learned Snape. You know, they were all looking out for Harry. Uh, in Chamber of Secrets, there's almost a mini conspiracy among the teachers, right? Like, right. not only do you have the teacher you can't trust in Gilderoy Lockhart, uh, the teacher who hates you in Snape, but even the teachers who are uh, good people uh, who care about you, like McGonagall and Dumbledore, when directly questioned by Harry and Ron and company, they, they shut down and send them away because uh, they think, they don't need this information. It's none of their business. And uh, they're, they think they're looking out for the students. Um, well, and again, they are looking out for the students. It's not just right, that they right. think they are. Like, like to, to be fair, if you went back and you're in their situation, you're not going to tell the students this information. It doesn't matter how special or not special the kids might be. Like, they're 12 years old in this book. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't think they would have told Harry specifically, but I think a, a school-wide announcement that uh, checking corners before you walk around them with mirrors yes, yeah. would be useful. Clearly. <laughs> and that's certainly the kind of thing where, you know, in high school, when our school would make stupid policies, we're all like, okay, this is ridiculous. Like, come on, guys. At least if you're going to have a stupid policy, tell us what the point is of it. Um yeah, but and, they didn't even make the policy in Chamber of like. No, they didn't, and and so that's the kind of thing. But I don't think the lack of lack of judgment is in not telling them important information. It's more of a they should have told them a little bit to be like, hey, look, something's going on. We're on top of it. As a precaution, you know, do this. Yes, um, and, and so yeah, I absolutely. It's not. I'm not saying they're criticism free, but it's not like they should have been transparent with the kids, or at least it's not like the smart thing would have been. To be transparent with the kids, even right. if it would have, in the end, possibly turned out to be better that way, sometimes the smarter call doesn't end up being for the best. And, and it's safe to assume that this is not the kind of occurrence that actually happens at Hogwarts every year. Right. Even though it seems that way, because we, we're there with Harry, and of course, That's Harry coming of up. age ramps up with Voldemort coming back to power, because they're intrinsically connected, as we right. later learn. Uh, I, I think it's safe to assume, though, that the years between you know, between Voldemort's fall and Harry coming to Hogwarts were fairly quiet years. And, uh, this reminds me of another theme of the entire series, which you already, which you understand the reason why in the first, in the very first one. But, you know, we've talked about, of course, the Star Wars extended universe, and there's this ridiculous aspect of the Star Wars extended universe and a lot of other series and stories where it seems like everything in the universe revolves around a handful of people. Yeah, like, come on, this is sort of ridiculous. And in this, it also happens with Harry, except that's because of a, there's a, an actual reason for it. Like, these things are revolving around him, not because he happens to be in the right place and to be the only person who can solve it. Like, there is 
there are specific reasons things are happening in time with him growing up and that they happen around him specifically. Right. Um, and he's not the only person who's important. Like he couldn't have done it all on his own. And we find that, find that out, but it like, but there's a causal, there is a reason for everything to be revolving around him. And it's not just, you know, he's the only person who could possibly do that. Like he's not the most competent person by a long shot. No. And, and this is established and we, we learn this and, and this is addressed later and we'll get to it. But you know, there's definitely, you just in the first one, when you learn his relationship to Voldemort, you're like, Oh, well, okay. Uh, I guess that makes sense that this is why there's a little kid who's going through this stuff rather than some adult who would make more sense to be the person who's, you know, opposing this big bad force. Right. Um, Voldemort and Harry are intrinsically linked and that, that, I mean, that explains everything. (laughs) Right. It it really does. And we learn about the link in the first one, but we learn what that means later on. And we learn that it's more than, more than was suspected. And we learn that going back to the first one and just how JK Rowling did set up so much. I, I remember it bothering me in the first book that Voldemort couldn't touch Harry because his mother died for him. Cause I remember, I remember it bothering me and thinking, are you telling me other mothers didn't die for their kids? And why doesn't that protect them? But then later with the whole Snape thing, it just, it, it just all makes sense. Right. Because yeah. she's the only mother who didn't have to die. Um, right. Like Voldemort would have killed. I mean, not that Voldemort could care less if any woman lived or died. Right. Right. Uh, But because Snape had specifically asked for her to be spared uh, and Voldemort gave her that option. uh, I mean, that is the only time that ever occurred. And that is why Harry is safe when other kids whose parents died for them are not. And it's just like, uh, uh. (laughs) ah, so much, so much she thought of. (laughs) <laughs> so much she thought of, and of course, there's the, and we'll get to this later, but there's the Tom Riddle's diary in two, which she did not, I don't think there's a valid argument that, that has sufficient evidence supporting that she intended that to become as important later on as it did become, but she was also she really good at, well. dra- at using details she established earlier, right? Um, later, which is... You know, when you have a series that runs for that long and you didn't know that you were actually going to be able to do it for uh, for the entirety of it or and it was going to become that successful, like you you, you got to learn that skill. Um, and she did a great job of that. Um, so uh, do you, we've done very do you have little. anything you want to we're kind of on Chamber of Secrets right now. Do you, do you have anything you want to say about Chamber of Secrets before we move on to Prisoner of Azkaban? Uh, so it's. It's funny you mentioned Chamber of Secrets being your least favorite one. It was my least favorite one until Order of the Phoenix. Um, and Order <laughs> of the Phoenix, I... Order of the Phoenix is the only one I didn't reread multiple times before the following one really? came out. Um, I reread it eventually afterwards. And I liked it much more upon second and third reading, but it's still my least favorite by a little bit. But but this is, of course, like... This is saying this is my least favorite of the Harry Potters in the way that... You know, if I've got, like, three dozen different types of chocolate cake, I'm going to have to pick one as my least favorite, you know? (laughs) I mean, I completely understand. Chamber of Secrets is my least favorite, and I just talked for how long on scenes I really loved? Right. (laughs) And and when it comes down to it, the only reason I dislike... Not dislike. I don't dislike Order of the Phoenix at all. The only reason it's my least favorite is just the 
Well, you know what? We'll get to that. <laughs> I'll, I'll We're leave not to order the Phoenix yet. Do you have thoughts on Chamber of Secrets? <laughs> um, so, uh, I do have thoughts. So, the, there's a lot of mythology that she does a great job of just building up, uh, uh, building up the mythology of the world in ways that, as we discussed, that you use later. Um, we're introduced to Fox and the the whole Phoenix Tears thing, which was fantastic. Yes. Um, and just the connection that Fox has to, to Dumbledore. And in that, we get a lot more of that humor. Because this is... Harry and Dumbledore don't really have much of a connection in the first one, right? Like, we really only right. see... Like, Dumbledore is sort of protective of him. We see him in the beginning, and we kind of see him in the end when he explains a little bit about what just happened to, to Harry in the end of Sorcerer's Stone. But Chamber of Secrets is where we really see Dumbledore starting to take a... To indicate that Harry's really is his favorite, and he sh- even though he shouldn't be picking favorites. Um, and, you know, part of that is just the, the hilarious, uh, the hilariousness involved with, well, is that when, um, Fox doesn't explode into bits in the second one, does he? Or is um, that later on? He, he does at the beginning of it, right? Okay, and, and that's when... At the beginning, he walks in, and Fox looks all sickly, and this is his first time in Dumbledore's office. Right, right. And it's his first time there, and suddenly the phoenix explodes. And he's like, oh, crap, I killed Dumbledore's <laughs> yes, phoenix. That's right, okay. I, I, I forget which... I always forget which book that happens in. And so that's the kind of thing. It introduces some levity in the relationship between Dumbledore and Harry that was a little bit there in the first one, but that's when it really clicks, is you see, okay... We know that there's something special about Harry. Dumbledore's already told us so. And now, like, Dumbledore cares a lot. And there's this is going to become a relationship that's going to matter. Um, and I think that's a really big deal. Um, it also really cements the relationship between Harry and the Weasley family, rather than just Ron. Oh, yes. Um, which oh, is, that's the book with the car, isn't it? Uh, that's the third... Well, actually, I don't know. No, no. The third book is the the night the night bus. So yeah, the yeah. second one is the one where uh, the Weasley twins and Ron break Harry out of his home. Yeah, right. <laughs> a- is it right after his birthday? Yeah, on his birthday. On I think. his birthday. No, 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 no. That's not right because that's the one where they uh, he wasn't going to be allowed to go, and then they no. Wait a minute. I'm getting confused now. They no, th- that's definitely the one with the flying car. You're right. Well, there's uh, two. Because remember, the the flying car goes wild and saves them from all of these spiders in uh, in the woods. Right, right, right. Uh, they crash it into the Whomping Willow, right? Yep. Yeah, that's right. Okay, I, I was because there are two scenes with the flying car. Right, there's a the flying car when they break Harry out. Right, uh, and then there's the flying car when <laughs> they get blocked out of platform nine and three quarters because of right. course this is the uh book that introduces dobby yeah I, well so this it's the really funny thing that which dobby i didn't really care for in early on and then of course he clicks later but i um, agree same thing for me but the thing about the, the reason i was confused for a second there is because i remembered the most distinctive thing i remember about the flying car was crashing into the whomping willow and of course the whomping willow is intrinsically linked with prisoner of azkaban yeah. but, but then you mentioned the night bus i was like that's right so i don't understand and then i remembered that of course this was rowling doing her thing and tying things back to a previous book um when she's like, yeah, the Whomping Willow, which we already knew about from the previous book. Um, right. It, so. She she was very good at that, at not, for the most part. Uh, at and not, not just, just flooding uh, us with new information only relevant to the current book. Um, right. Like, 
She yeah, made the, the fact that the Whomping Willow exists. She made the world feel like it was one entire world, and we were being filled in with all this detail that could be inco- inconsequential and could be important, and you really didn't know, because it's really just important to have all this stuff, because we're introducing a, a world where they do everything differently. They don't have electricity, they use magic for everything, so we're just fascinated by the little details that might not be important at all. Um, and right. some of which aren't important at all, except that they make the world feel real to us. Um and then, of course, you know, there's just simple things like traveling by flu. Uh, you know, when you're first introduced to that, it's not a big deal. It's kind of funny. And then eventually it becomes really important uh, that we already know how that mechanic works. And she, she does a really good job of doing that. Uh, she lays the groundwork in the way that writing a piece of contemporary fiction in a non-magical world just uses your knowledge of how cars work and how, you know... <laughs> putting a stamp on a piece of mail to send through the through the the post system works that kind of thing and she has to establish all of that for you when I went, and also what I think is really interesting uh, about these books as opposed to the other kids' books at the time uh, is, and we kind of talked about this in our last podcast about children's literature is a lot of books at that time um, it felt the need like every book had to you should be able to pick up pick up any book in the series and it be your first book in the series so they were always reintroducing you to characters always reintroducing you to the concept and it got really old like if you read all the babysitters club or all the bopsy twins like you could skip the first three chapters essentially um but jk rowling didn't do that she assumed we had read the books beforehand and uh and I think it was to great effect where she could do things like introduce the Whomping Willow in book two and then use it in book three. Or, you know, um, Cedric Diggory uh, is mentioned much earlier than he appears because he, he doesn't appear until book four, right? But but he is the, the one seeker who beat Harry in um, book three. Right. Um, um, which, real quick, is Cedric one year or two years older than Harry? I uh, Cedric has to be two to three years older than you're right he, he was significantly older which because which you of have course to gives be you 17 whole... to enter the uh right Tri-Wizard tournament and, and i think they did a really good job of that too um there's something uh because harry does become a you know a seeker really early and we know he's gifted but i like the fact that he can be gifted without being so good that he's gonna go pro you know because that happens in real life um right people are like yeah he's one of the best seekers we've ever seen or that we've seen in a long time in real life, there's a huge difference between being one of the best you've seen and being good enough to go pro. And um, and I like that that doesn't, like, yeah, he kind of likes the idea of it, the way that kids often do, but but it's not something, you know, later on when you do run into somebody who goes pro, you're like, yeah, it's just a different level, you know? Right. Um, and, uh, and I like the idea, of course, in this, because if he was the kind of person who was good enough to go pro, he probably would have beaten Tedrick, too. You know, even though Cedric was several years older than him, it's like no, he can be beaten. He's not just well. Well, the know. only reason why Cedric beat Harry, which this is getting into book three, and I don't want to talk about Cedric too much. That's okay, we, we, book can, we can just go ahead and start going into book uh, three. But but it. discussing the book three, the only reason why he beat Harry is because that is the match where Harry passed out because of the Dementors. That's true. And Cedric didn't realize it. And remember at the beginning of book four, Harry's uh, Cedric's dad's like making a big deal out of it, and, and Cedric's, Cedric's like, "Kill me now," because <laughs> yeah. Cedric is like Cedric's a great guy, right? And yeah, I don't want to talk about him too much yet because that's we'll, we'll get to that in the fourth one. Um, I have lots of wonderful opinions. About we Cedric will talk Harry. about how he's established in the third one because we need to be talking about the third one right now right so the third book is my favorite book michael 
Mm, not mine, but I do like it. Is it which one's your favorite? One? Uh, my favorite is definitely Goblet of Fire by okay. a long shot. And uh, I think both of those books uh, tend to be people's favorites. Uh, I feel like everyone I talk to either picks three or four um, for, for a lot of reasons. But uh, I feel like three is extremely popular, and I think there's a lot of reasons for so it. When but... third, the third came out, it became my favorite because I liked the first one, and then I loved the second one, but I didn't like it as much. So I read the first one several times before the mm-hmm. third one came out, and I, read, I reread the second one one more time, um, or before I had the third one. Then I got the third one, and it was immediately my favorite in the series. And then, and it was I reread that a bunch of times, and then the fourth one came out, and that became my favorite for a while. Um, I think temporarily the sixth and seventh both topped the fourth one temporarily, and then when I reread the series, I was like, nope, fourth one's still my favorite. Yeah, the fourth one topped the third one for me for a while, but uh, then on subsequent rereads, uh, the third one just. Uh, the fourth one was spectacular, which well, I don't we'll want to talk about to, yeah, yeah. why. We'll, but, uh, but yeah, the third one over time, uh, to me, for, the fourth one won the sprint and the third one won the marathon, if that makes sense. Totally. Um, so they both have very special places in my heart. Um, but the third one, I, the third one was the first book where it, it was just different. Not, it not to get to dark. The, right. And not to the extent that the fourth one became different. But the, but the first two books were like, Mystery solve, mystery solve. And the third book was like, someone is hunting and wants to kill you. The third one was definitely a, not just that, but you, like, this whole thing is going in one particular direction, right? Like, the first two, sure, they involved Voldemort, but the second one didn't really, right? Right. Like, it, like, it involved Kid Voldemort. It, it involved an artifact from Kid Voldemort, and then you, but. But there, the the overall malicious intent, like the reason that artifact existed, was because of Voldemort, and but the reason it got placed where it did was really like it was one person. It was Lucius Malfoy doing something on his own, right? Right. Um, like if, if I recall correctly, he didn't even have orders to do that, right? He just no, he did just it because he wanted like for kicks, kind of, right? Um, and so there was no real connection to an overall story there, like. The second one, and that might have been why it uh, it was my least favorite um, for until the fifth one, was that it didn't seem to connect to the larger story. Like it, it was more world background than than progressing the, the overall story at all. Um, right. Which, of course, again, I still love the book, but uh, but that's when you get to the third one, it's, it picks it up again, and you're like, wait a minute. Voldemort's still trying to come back. Like, we knew that that things weren't settled with the Sorcerer's Stone. Like, we knew that. But we haven't seen him again since. Right. And And in the third one, now suddenly his supposed right-hand man is uh, free and intent to uh, destroy Harry. And and you get this sense of menace from the very beginning, right? With the... You know, Harry uses magic on his aunt... And uh, decides he's going to run away because he's like, well, that's it. I've been expelled from Hogwarts after last summer, you know, with the whole Dobby thing. Right. This time I actually did use magic. Um, And just the level of concern, like the Ministry of Magic comes down on him. This is our introduction to Cornelius Fudge. Right. Um, And it's – this is a big deal and no one's telling Harry why. Um, Eventually, uh, I think it's uh, Mr. Weasley or someone – I know in the movie it's Mr. Weasley. I can't remember in the books if it's Mr. Weasley. Uh, 
does tell Harry that Sirius Black is after him, not yes, though not why. I do just, believe it's Mr. Weasley in the book as well. Um, and I believe part of it is Harry overhearing discussion first and then Mr. Weasley deciding to tell him. Like, cause I right, think cause it was they a, know at this point what a brash kid Harry is. The Weasleys <laughs> argue about it, right? Like while he's yes. staying with them. Um, yes, Mr. and Mrs. Weasley definitely – yes, this is the kind of thing they argue Yeah, about. so they, they argue <laughs> – I'm pretty sure they argue about it and then they decide, no, he deserves to know this. Um, right. And, uh, but because he doesn't tell them he was his best friend, right? He just says he's coming no, no, after you. No, no, they just say Sirius Black was Voldemort's right-hand man and he has escaped from prison and now he's going to kill you. Right. And what's interesting is Sirius Black is introduced back in – he's introduced while Harry's at his aunt and uncle's house because he comes up on the Muggle news. Right. That's, that's how much of a big deal this is, right? And, that the Muggles have been warned about him. And this, the, the really cool thing that this does world – like in terms of establishing the world, it establishes that there is actually a connection. There are some muggles who are allowed to know about right. what's going on. And that the, the British government has like, you know, they actually have someone who talks to the minister of magic. Uh, presumably was it the prime minister that he actually talks to? Prime minister. Yeah. Yes. It was pretty hilarious. Because um, I mean, if you imagine I, the way the British government works, right, is there's lots of different ministries, and then there's the prime minister. Right. He is the prime minister. The minister of magic is just a secondary minister to the prime minister. Right. Uh, but you get but, the, you also get the idea that the magical – the impression that I always got is that more or less the magical governments, they're not part of the larger ones. They're sort of right. – they've got their I, own I borders. They're shadow governments. It's sort of like a – they've got their own separate map for what for what the countries are and stuff like that. And, um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but the, the 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 menace of Sirius Black is very real from the beginning, uh, and then the whole Dementors on the train. Um, Learning that know, Sirius Black is is was their friend just that when oh, you find it was that devastating. Out, it was devastating, and the thing that it does about it, and I'm jumping to the end, of course, because everyone who's listening should have already long read and or watched. Um, <laughs> this prisoner of Azkaban. Yeah, uh, I really hope so because we are ruining any chance of you appreciating this series at the kind of level we do. <laughs> if, um, but the if you when you find out instead that it's Peter Pettigrew, it doesn't really make things any better because that like the alarm that this brings to mind that like anyone could be a Death Eater, right? Like yes. it could be the person who was your best friend, or it could be one of your other best friends who was. The equivalent of, uh, of, um, oh my gosh, what's his name? Um, the, the other kid who I mentioned earlier. Neville. Could have been, Neville, yeah. Like, it's like someone like Neville could have been coerced into doing it and then just continued on that path. And, and it's just, yep. like, that's alarming. <laughs> and It is. And, and it's alarming that an innocent man has been convicted for such a long period of time. Right. And, I, and, and potentially, like, and then, of course, you find out that the only reason he didn't go insane is that he knows he's innocent and he's just planning his... Right, and that's his, not a happy thought, so no. the Dementors can't take it from him. Right. <laughs> like, he knows he's innocent and he's planning his revenge and they can't take it from him. It was like, that's really depressing. It's really dark. Um, and, but this whole, like, it really establishes, because before we knew people were afraid of Dumbledore, like, or not Dumbledore, excuse me, Voldemort, so afraid that they don't say his name. He who should not, shall not be named, and so on and so forth. Like, but you don't really get the weight of how big a deal this was until Prisoner of Azkaban, when you're like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, the, this the was people force. turning on people, you know, killing each other. It wasn't just him. He had, like, right. tons of followers who just were littered throughout and are still littered throughout because this is when things start going on when he when, 
when he goes out, this is when you start finding people, you know, allegiances realigning. And right. Um, and, and it's the overreaction to Sirius Black, right? That right. that shows how how much of a big deal uh, this was. Like dementors were brought to Hogwarts. Uh, you know, guards are set up on a school, and the Minister of Magic is getting involved in, in a student's life because Sirius Black is that big of a deal. And if Sirius Black is that big of a deal, how much a bigger deal is Voldemort? Right, and and this is a, a cool. The way that this is done is it's so it's done so effectively is. Sure, they can turn a blind eye towards Dumbledore saying, hey, look, Voldemort's going to come back. See the Sorcerer's Stone thing? That's a way that he's trying to come back, and people can just ignore him. But Sirius Black escaping, well, they know he escaped, and he's a big deal, right. Who's, and, he, and he's just a follower, so, like, he's and people a, are afraid of him. People are afraid of him, and they can't deny that he's on the loose. Right. And it's like, well, crap, if they get to the point where they actually admit that, that Voldemort's on the loose, what are they going to do? Like, they're just going to pee their pants and not be able to function. Like... <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, and to me, one of the scenes that uh, truly shows how scared the teachers are, even, is uh, when um, – I can't remember if it's when Sirius Black attacks the fat lady or Ron, but uh, after all the students are rounded up and put in the Great Hall to sleep for the night, all the students in the school, and all of the teachers are there in the Great Hall guarding them, like yeah. – it, that's our first hint of what's to come in book seven, like with the Battle of Hogwarts. Like, we we can't even trust them in their rooms anymore. These students, like, th- this is a even with the Dementors on Hogwarts property, <laughs> <laughs> that these these students are are being attacked in their beds. <laughs> so it's yeah, it. I, it th- that's the book where things started getting dark. But then, of course, it lightened a little because. This is the one book where, in the end, there was no enemy, right? I mean, there was Peter Pettigrew, but nothing came of it. This this is almost the book where there was a hanging ending, right? Like, Peter didn't go to jail. Sirius Black didn't become free. Uh, You know, like... The only positive thing that came out of it was Harry having a letter to be able to go to Honeydukes the following year that Dumbledore accepted. Yes, yes. (laughs) That's basically... Oh, and, and a new broomstick. And uh, and Ron got a new owl. Okay, so so there's like little things like that, but but in general, not so. Much. Oh my gosh, Ron's owls! Yeah. Oh, uh, I love but, that thing. <laughs> but uh, another person I want to bring up in this book, who's first introduced in this book, is of course Lupin. This is our first introduction. This book uh, is our introduction to the Marauders, right? Yes, uh, which is James, fantastic. Peter, Sirius, and Lupin, and Lupin is the first and only. I feel like professor that really feels like a professor the students can trust and talk to honestly, Um, which is not to say that people like McGonagall are bad professors. It's more of a he's the only professor that is a friend to the students rather than just a trustworthy Uh, adult. Like McGonagall, everyone knows they can trust McGonagall. It's just a matter of they don't they can't approach her. Right. She's unapproachable because she's more likely to, to they're more likely to get in trouble with McGonagall. Uh, whereas with Lupin, you could take a problem and be like, look, I know I messed up. Help me. <laughs> yeah, like how do I whereas fix this? McGonagall's it- answer is going to be, you're grounded, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, um, and it- I just love Lupin and the entire the – entire, I mean he's their only really good defense against the dark arts professor unless we count, you know, and, and when it comes down to it, terrible. he is Harry's friend. Like just flat out like – but you know we know that that, and we can talk about how that is 
shown to be true later, but there's no question. Like, he counts Harry not as a, not, like, sure, partially as a charge because he loved Harry's father, but, uh, or his parents, but, but also, like, he's his friend, you know? He, he does become his friend. He sees him as someone worth respecting more than just someone worth helping to look over. And and, it, and it's very different between the relationship between Sirius and Harry and Lupin and Harry, because I feel like the relationship between Sirius and Harry is slightly unhealthy on Sirius's side. Um, Which is completely understandable. Because Sirius is unstable. <laughs> he, he's unstable, and he does know it's his charge, like... It is his charge to take care of Harry, whether he right and however but, but he, he can. But he also kind of views Harry as he he can't fully differentiate Harry from Harry's father, right? Um, Which you know, Lupin, if if he had been around the entire time, he probably would have been able to. But right. but he didn't. All of a sudden, he's like, "Hey, I'm not being driven like attempt. I'm not being driven insane by these soul sucking monsters, and but I'm still being hunted by people like." It, you know, it's completely understandable, and I think, and it's great, like, you know, the, your criticism of the relationship, perfectly valid, but it's clearly intentional. Like, that's supposed to be that right. way. Right, it's and- definitely clearly intentional. Whereas Lupin, I feel like, is, yes, he's a friend to Harry, he's respectful of Harry, but I, I also feel like he, if he had not been a werewolf, <laughs> spoiler, right. uh, and had been in a more stable situation, he would have been the better father figure to Harry. Um, totally. I, I, I think he also recognized that Harry is still a kid. Right, exactly. He's the kind of thing, you know, when people discuss, uh, and this is a little bit off topic, but when people discuss, you know, methods of raising your children, um, you know, they'll talk about how some, some parents are just way too harsh on their kids, and then they talk about some parents try too hard to be their kids' friends, and, you know, you have to be able to draw the line about between being their parent and being their friend. Like, you can be their friend until it gets in the way of being being their parent. And, and you get the idea that Lupin is his friend, except when he has to be the adult, Right? right, and then he'll try and be as friendly about it as he can, but he's like, "No, look, this is kind of ridiculous." And and that approach with Lupin like gets Harry to listen to him. Like, there's never Harry. I don't really recall a time when Harry argues with Lupin the way he argues with every other adult. You know, like even with Dumbledore, he argues, right. and right. and with Lupin, it's like, "Oh, well, you know, you agree with me, and you go along, and you understand so much of what I say that okay, I will listen when you disagree." Um, right. And I, and I think some of this gets into the psychology of Harry himself, totally. which is, you know, that he he didn't grow up with adults he could respect. Right. Uh, so I think it's harder for him to respect adults in many ways. Um, I think he definitely does respect adults. I think the criticism that Harry doesn't respect any adults that a lot of people like to level at him is not true. I, yeah, uh, I don't think it's true at all. I think it's more of a he doesn't know how to respond to having he d- that respect. <laughs> he doesn't, and he doesn't know how he, he is not very good at faking respect for people he does not respect, which is uh, something we teach our children very young, right? Like this person's an adult and you have to respect them regardless of whether they deserve your respect. And Harry's not very good at faking that. Right. <laughs> um, so this brings me back to Snape, which I wanted to bring up uh, with Prisoner of Azkaban. Totally worth it. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. Snape, this is the book where we realize Snape is a real person. Um, yes. which is Which is not to say he wasn't a real person in 1 and 2. Uh, it's just that in 1 and 2, he was almost a caricature of the professor nobody likes. Which is, you know, granted, is I, he's supposed to be because we're right. supposed to suspect him in the first one. We're really not supposed to like him in the second one. And, and part of it is just, of course, how kids interpret things, right? Right. So th- hey. this is not a criticism at all. Right. This, this is, uh, you know, I, Harry... Uh, 
Harry views Snape from a very narrow-minded way. And this is, so we only see what Harry sees and we get Snape filtered through Harry. But this is the book where Snape says and does things and there are enough other people interacting with Snape that we can read between the lines, right? Like despite Harry's filter on Snape that says everything Snape does, says and does is stupid, like Snape really is trying to save Harry uh, in this book. He really does think Sirius Black is there to kill him. Uh, and yes, he, he does kind of gleefully, (laughs) (laughs) uh, but you get this dynamic because Lupin and Sirius and Snape are peers, which is not a relationship Snape has with anyone else in the books. Um, because McGonagall is older, Dumbledore is older, everyone else is older, but these people are... Snape's contemporaries, and there's a lot of history that goes into that. And, and we learn where- some of that history, and finally real, yeah, this is, it's a big deal. We see into, as you said before, the Marauders, and we see that they were kind of jerks sometimes, led yeah. by Harry's sometimes. dad. <laughs> sometimes. I mean, cause I, we're, we're we'll selectively- talk about this more when we get to five, but I have... <laughs> but yes. They but, just- and, we, and we get it, and the big thing is we hear it from Lupin, who was one of them. Right. right? Like, we were like, yeah, no, we, we were not as nice as Snape as we should have been. Right? Like, like he, he definitely says that. And you can see, of course, though, Lupin couches that in trying not to, he doesn't want to say something bad about Harry's dad to him. And he's also, Snape, uh, Lupin, Lupin also looks at it from the perspective of someone who is in the cool crowd. You know, even though Snape, I mean, Lupin was the lesser of the cool crowd, right? Because he had this weird stigma associated with him. He, he was still one of the coolest kids at school because he was associated with Harry, with James and Sirius. Right. Um, and so he, he can look back at it and say, well, we were kids, but it's harder when you were the person being picked on to distance yourself from that. Right. And that's, it's harder for Snape. You're like, no, you traumatized me for seven years. Like you just don't get over that. Right. And, um, it's, and of course, this hits even more in the fifth one, as you discussed. Right. But which I have lots of things I want to bring up when we get to the fifth one oh, about oh, this. Sorry, this uh, another thing that this book also establishes is the not clear black and white lines between houses in the in the school because you get the whole because um, it, it's in this that we learn that Sirius Black is like the only non Slytherin in his family, right? Um, and it granted in some ways it helps sort of blur the line between the houses and in some it actually kind of misleads you a little bit because you're like oh well he's the only good one in the family and he's the only non-slytherin but right. but at the same time you're like oh they're you know people can break the molds and they established this before where uh what are the the patil twins who are in two different houses yeah ravenclaw and gryffindor um so so yeah i mean you get some of that but it but it was one of those the first characters that you actually care about who you see that with um where just being in the same family, of course, because of the fact that the the Weasleys are all Gryffindors. Um, it, yeah, it was that was kind of an interesting thing. Again, there's just every book establishes something. Um, it establishes several things, right? Um, man, but yeah, Prisoner of Azkaban. So a, a big thing, magic wise, that it introduced that was really really neat. Um, it's the first time that Harry does something that's truly spectacular. Not oh, just because yes. he's the only person. Like, he he gets driven enough to do something that is actually really advanced. Like, the, you know, creating, being, being able to make a Patronum, a Patronus? Patronus. Patronus. Patronum is the end of the 
the spell. Yeah, expecto, expecto patronum. patronum. <laughs> um, so he makes a, a patronus that is a big deal. Like, you know, sure, he struggles at it at first, but none of the other kids can do one. Right. And so when he finally pulls it off, it's really, truly a big deal. And it's the first time where... Um, and we will get back to this later in, in Harry Potter and or the Order of the Phoenix. Um, but it's the first time where his abilities against the dark arts aren't just because of destiny or whatever. He actually does something significant against the dark, you know, against the dark arts and against creatures. Like he actually learns how to do something that other people, many, many other people can't really do. Yeah. I, um, I think this is the book that establishes that Harry, though he's not the smartest, though he's not even the bravest necessarily, he really does have an innate talent with magic. And some of that, I think, is because of his connection to Voldemort. Um, and some of it and is his parents his, were skilled. Um, right. And He, he just yeah. has talent, uh, which Hermione has all the book smart, but she's not as talented as him. And, and I think that's kind of what they're trying to establish with his whole... Uh, you know, Quidditch being so uh, such a natural at Quidditch. Right. Magic is something that comes naturally to Harry. Um, you know, he, he doesn't nothing. have the wrong. Ron's got Ron's the heart, Michael. <laughs> okay, yeah. he's the Soka of this team. I the Soka. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know that I accept that. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think uh, I think Soka is a lot more the heart of his team than than Ron is of this team. Ron is the uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, well. Uh, yeah, man, I don't know what Ron is. <laughs> I love him, but I, I I still sometimes wonder what kind of value he really brought to the team, other than just sometimes being lucky in ways that they needed. Um, anyways. Yeah. Uh, I, but I think out of the, uh, the three of them, Ron was the most true Gryffindor. Because um, Hermione was very much more... Uh, she's a Gryffindor, but she's more of a Ravenclaw. Uh, Harry is a Gryffindor, but he, he's got Slytherin in him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Whereas Ron, he's just brash and just rushes into situations and says things he doesn't mean, which, you know, is which, like... of course, <laughs> he is the sixth of seven. Is that right? Yes, yeah, sixth of seven. Totally by uh, that. When you have five older brothers who are all brash and, uh, well, no, four of the five are all brash and, you know, kind of doing uh, their own thing and whatnot. You, you can totally buy him having that kind of personality. And because he's the sixth kid in the family nobody's really ever depended on him to be able to do anything. So, um, yep. <laughs> so, so you totally get like where he is makes total sense. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, again, totally believable character and you know, he, he's not incompetent. He's just, and you do find of course, later on when he actually gets decent equipment that, Hey, some of it was the equipment's fault. <laughs> It was uh, not all just Oh, him. that wand and that, the slugs. Oh, <laughs> gross. Um, but yeah, it, there's so much established in this third book that it really, you know, the time turner was just a fantastic little thing to throw in there to give us a really interesting self-contained story. Um, along with some just, just some imaginative ideas we, as we discussed before and when talking about time travel, um, just a really neat sort of way of like, Hey, magic can go really bad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it can be a not yeah. good thing. Cause they, when they talk about the time turner, they talk about the, the guy who drew himself insane or something. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. Drove himself insane. Did I say drew himself? It's okay. We forgive you. Okay. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate your understanding. Yeah. The, the magic at the end of, uh, 
Azkaban is just extremely clever. Uh, they solve all of their problems with the time turner, but in a way that, yeah, you know, it, it, we, we talked about this before. It's just smart. Um, and what's his name? The Hippogriff. Um, and what's the, what's the I, I just, name? Uh, Buckbeak? Buckbeak, yeah. Oh my gosh, that was that made me so happy, the whole Buckbeak situation. Like, <laughs> yeah, that Buckbeak got saved. <laughs> well, and of course, because you don't know, you think he already died, right? And then you're like, nope, yeah. we can fix all of this. <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah. so, and of course, Dumbledore, uh, more, establishing more of Dumbledore's kind of knowing what's going on and being sort of uh, mischievous is his whole kind of twinkling his his dialogue and making sure that professors get out of a given room at the right time so that because yeah. he knows when Harry and Hermione are going to show up to a room. Uh, yeah. Just so, so <laughs> funny. And then just like dropping a hint so that he knows so that they can hear him at the right time is it's just like because so, there are some things where you're like, how does he know they're there? But, you know, he does know. Um Man, I love Dumbledore. Yeah, just how, how how livid Snape is at the end that Sirius went free. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and that's one such... of those, like, you know, and, and so this is true, the entire series, all the way to the end. I never liked Snape. But by the time the third book rolls around, you know he's not a bad guy. Like, right. or you have an inkling of, and she tries to make it firm enough that you can believe that he's not, even if you still suspect some. Um, but this is some of the stuff that's like, Snape still has plenty of genuinely bad qualities. And one of them is his yeah. sort of maliciousness towards these kids who, yeah, they might have made his life miserable when he was younger, but dude, this guy was in prison with these soul sucking demon creatures for years for, you know, for 13 years now. And he didn't do the thing he was accused of. Like, right. dude, get over it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think this is the point where we have to give uh, J.K. props because a lot of books uh, make adults into these cardboard cliches or they're not real people when they're right. kids' books, right? And in, in Harry Potter, all of the adults are real people. Like, they have real psychological reasons for being the way they totally. are. And, and like, the Snape is- makes complete psychological sense. Lupin, complete sense. Sirius, he makes complete sense. You know, Dumbledore, he makes complete sense once you learn everything about him. And uh, it's... And that's exactly the, it. Like, I still like... They're real characters. I, I still dislike Snape because of this whole thing, but I buy it. You know, it's like, yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I understand that. I know people hang on to things when they really shouldn't. And it doesn't make sense to just keep this sense of, you know, malice in their hearts. And then, of course, Snape being just having the general kind of attitude that he does. Of Yeah, totally makes sense that he would be the guy to to not want to, you know, to not really care that 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 um black that serious black didn't go back to or to want black to go back to prison even though he doesn't deserve to um right. yeah so so that was neat um now that said he doesn't really know that black is innocent does he uh he gets told at the end right? oh that's right okay okay i dumbledore makes him accept it at some point <laughs> right uh i also think uh you know unfortunately uh, this is going to be weird because I really think the casting for Snape was great in the movie. Uh, but this is one instance where I wish they had cast someone younger as Snape because it's book three that really made me realize how young Snape is. Like, yeah, yeah, I agree. 
all of that entire generation should be young. Like let let's say uh, you know Harry wasn't born until his parents were I don't know twenty five. That that still puts Snape at thirty five only at the beginning of uh, um, Sorcerer's Stone. But I, I would I would think Harry's parents had him much younger than that. Um, I, I just would because too. Of the way the timelines worked out. So I would think you know. Snape is in his 30s, and school is not that long ago for him. So, you know, when people like Dumbledore, who have been out of school since the 30s, as far as we know, I mean, Dumbledore has been out of school for a long time. (laughs) You know, it's hard. He's giving this advice to Snape, and Snape, you know, for him, it's so recent. Um, You you can – this is the book that you realize, wow, these guys are young. Like – they're they're still young enough that they're developing as people themselves, um, and that that's why you can get so much change from a character like Snape. Between not, not that he changes a lot, but th- that's why he's part of the way he is. He's, he's not as removed from school, and neither is Sirius. They're both they both haven't let go, Sirius or Snape. Right. Um, whereas Lupin's the only one who's grown up <laughs> because he's yeah he's had the time and he didn't stay at the building. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. He he also has had the less drama happen to him, I guess, which is yeah. weird to say when he's a werewolf. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and that, I guess that shows just how critical the this, the events that they went through were, right? Because yeah. this, it was a world-changing thing. Voldemort was a big, big deal. Um, but I want to say one thing, because you said you almost wish that he had been cast younger. And I think a more accurate way to be put it was it would be that we wish Alan Rickman was younger. Because yes. I don't necessarily want that anybody else would play him <laughs> instead of Alan Rickman, but if Alan Rickman was a few years younger, it would have been it, it would have been great. Um, yeah, like Alan Rickman it uh, at Die Hard age would have been fantastic. I think. Right. Yeah, because um, because that's the one thing uh, you know. My parents like like your parents only saw the movies, um, and. My mom, yes, you know, you can say things like you, you always knew Snape was good. But in the books, Snape is a lot more a volatile character. Um, we always kind of knew he was good, but he was incredibly uh, all over the place emotionally, you know. Um, whereas in the movies, Alan Rickman just brings a level of stableness to Snape uh, that my mom from the beginning was always like, oh, yeah, he's a, he's a good person. He's just a strict teacher. <laughs> well, your, your mom's also a teacher. So, right. Uh, right. I, 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 that's not how I felt about him in the movies. I kind of disliked him in the movies just as much as I did in the books. Um, uh, I, I disliked him more in the books. In the books, he was a little more, uh, as I said, volatile, um, hot-headed. Uh, yeah, okay, okay. I, I guess I do see that. And, and I think that comes to a head at the end of 3, right? I right. Mean, that's you, like, Snape is literally, like, exploding. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> at that scene between him and Sirius and uh, Lupin. And he's like, ha, Lupin, you are the traitor. I found you out, you know? And, and he's just so happy. And uh, he, he's so happy to be right <laughs> and so angry. And so, yeah, it's. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, end of the third book. What is the state of the universe, state of the world? Because we we discussed that this is essentially, these three books are the introduction and the setup for what is to come. Yeah. Um, Voldemort's not back. So Uh, let's, I guess more aggressively, we know that there is a concerted effort to, something is happening. Voldemort is getting stronger in passing. We don't necessarily know that he's actively doing anything, but things are shifting. Um, Because they, they, 
you know, we have the almost the uh, the third book has sort of that theme that's uh, anti overreaction to terrorism and so on um, with the serious black thing and Dumbledore objecting to, but the ministry of magic forcing the dementors upon the house. And they're like, Hey, this is going to blow up in our faces. Um, these people, these things are not going to be loyal to us when things come, uh, when things come to a head and it's really not the kind of thing you want around a school, but you get that things are changing. Like something something has been triggering changes. Um, we don't necessarily know what, but the fact that Sirius Black was allowed to get away, um, or was able to get away, it's... So, of course, at first you want to, you know, you want to think that Voldemort's getting stronger, therefore, you know, Sirius Black was able to get away. And then later you find, oh no, he's not actually a a bad guy, but the reason he was able to get away is he saw a picture of Peter Pettigrew. Um, which is pretty hilarious, really. Mm-hmm. Um, still, just yeah. figuring out that he has been Ron's rat this entire time is... I know! Living as a rat. Oh, disturbing. Scabbers, because we liked scabbers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we did. Well, and that's the thing, right, is Peter Pettigrew is... You get the impression he was inherently likable when he was younger, and then just things didn't go his way, and he got essentially bullied into becoming a bad guy, you know? Um, or at least that's how I read it. I, I wouldn't know so much as bullied into as, uh, I think at some point someone describes him as always latching on to the most powerful person around him. And, uh, in high school Maybe. or at school, that was, uh, James and Sirius and they protected him. Uh, and then he probably got in with a bad crowd and Voldemort was powerful and he wasn't strong enough to, to stand against him. So, right. So yeah. I guess I think of him, I, I think more sympathetically of him because I think of him as a weak-minded person who needs other people's strength, you know, and and yeah, he was a terrible Gryffindor. <laughs> yeah, he was. That's a, that was a really. What's I, up with the Sorting Hat, man? <laughs> uh, you know, hey, nobody's perfect. <laughs> um, but so the, the end of the world is like we know something's going to happen. Voldemort clearly something's going to happen where Voldemort is going to make a concerted effort to go back because that's been left hanging since the end of Sorcerer's Stone. Yeah. Um, the third one establishes that, hey, there are these huge pockets of people who are actually still loyal to him. Like, the second one had a tiny bit of that by establishing that Lucius Malfoy has some of these artifacts. But the third one draws in, like, we start to get the commentary of the kids talking about their parents and figuring out that, hey, some of these people will go and follow Voldemort when he comes back. Right. Um... And but it still leaves us like there's it's still generally a world building thing. We learn friendships, we learn where how people feel about each other, but it's still the same old world that it's been. Um, and things kind of resolve at the end of like they're not better at three, which is an interesting sort of thing. Like nothing improves, but nothing is worse either. And Other than all of the population is kind of on high alert now, right? Because they still think Sirius Black oh, is bad. That's true. So, so the population is, but at least we know that that's not that big a deal. Um, right. Now that said, we know Peter Pettigrew's on the loose. Um, we don't know how significant a point that is um, until the next book. But yeah, that's uh, in general, it, the world is on higher alert, but it's not crazy it's not gone crazy yet it's it's getting into that sort of like the the lead up to that overcompensating to the threat of terrorism sort of state and um 
and we just, you know, you've started to learn all the characters and the depth they have to them. Um, and we will make that a break between episodes because we are going on for a while and we still have to talk about the last, uh, the last four books in the series. So, uh, so yeah, our, uh, Mandy and I are going to continue recording once I close out this half, but, uh, for those of you who, uh, who are planning on listening, just, uh, stay tuned to our Twitter accounts and our website as per usual. And, uh, presumably the following week after this episode posts, you'll be able to hear us talk about the rest of Harry Potter. 